This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know that feeling when someone takes the words right out of your mouth? It's like they've read your mind. At the moment, we put it down to coincidence, right? But how would you feel if someone could actually scan your brain and decode exactly what you're thinking word for word? Are we close to that? That story is coming up later. We're speaking to an expert, so you're going to want to keep listening because it might surprise you. Also coming up, international students in Darwin are demanding action to make the city safer for them. It comes as a Bangladeshi student fights for his life after allegedly being attacked in his own bed. We'll fill you in. First, though. Pack. We love working here at the university. We love what we do here, but we're not going to be taken for granted. On Triple Jack. Yeah, how's uni been this week? You had any shoots or lectures cancelled, turn up, nobody's there? There's been a lot of disruptions at campuses across Australia. Uni staff have been walking off the job in a few different states. They're saying they're tired of the conditions, the casualisation of the workforce. It means they're all overworked, underpaid. Students are getting a shit deal as well. If you are a student, I'm keen to hear what you think of this. Are you backing up the uni staff? Maybe you've been out there protesting with them. Or maybe you work at the uni yourself, you're affected by this. It seems like there's this big reckoning happening at the moment, that there's a lot of attention on the way our unis are structured and how that's got to change moving forward. I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Message in 0439757555. We're going to unpack some of those broader issues with the system in a bit, talk about the government's response. First, though, here's Angel Parsons to bring us up to speed with what's been happening this week. This is the sound of a rally in Melbourne where hundreds of university staff were taking a stand for working conditions and pay. It was a huge turnout with a stream of people that just went on and on. And there have been rallies like this all over the country this week with staff also striking, demanding better job security and permanency, reasonable workloads and pay rises. Our working conditions are the students' learning conditions. This is Jane Boag, a nursing lecturer speaking at a rally in Ballarat. We care about students, but we can't do that without fair and equitable working conditions. Our increased working load, a model of working allocations that is unfair and not realistic or reflective of what we do has to be changed. It's not just about the salary, but we deserve to be paid for the work that we do. And staff are saying that all of this really has an impact on learning for students too. Hack hit up some uni campuses today to find out what students think. I mean, I think it's fair for them to strike. It's like, that's fair enough. In your uni, how important is a good teacher to you? I think very important. Yeah. Yeah, it's crucial, I reckon. Extremely important. I think that it makes all the difference. The National Tertiary Education Union is representing the staff on strike. They estimate that only three in ten jobs across the sector are permanent, which is holding back people's careers and entire lives. There's industrial action happening at the University of Queensland, James Cook University, Newcastle, Deakin, Monash and more. Here's Matthew Abbott from the union branch at Federation University. And staff are really facing... Uh, rising cost of living pressures, like everybody else, of course. 
Um, but I think this really adds insult to injury in the context of years of job cuts, cuts to student support services, um, understaffing and workload intensification. So the, the, uh, the pay offer, um, it's too low just in, as a monetary figure, but it's also really disrespectful in the context of years of really poor treatment. And it's time for senior management to start respecting staff and treating us decently. Federation Uni recorded a net operating deficit of $41 million last year and says the institution, like other universities, was facing significant financial challenges due to the impacts of the pandemic and it would continue negotiations to reach a fair outcome for all parties. And the body that represents Aussie unis, the Australian Higher Education Industrial Association, says that unis would like to offer more permanent roles, but can't because government funding is short to medium term. It also says that if they got more certainty around funding, we'd likely see more permanency. In the North, Dr Jonathan Strauss is a student services worker at JCU and also the union's branch president. He said staff there are taking action over not having had a pay increase since 2021 and offers that don't keep up with inflation. But he also says the government does have a role to play. Public funding for universities is very poor in terms of what's done in OECD countries around the world. It's actually one of the very lowest levels of public funding. So one of the things that should be done, one of the things the budget ought to be addressing is to actually rectify that. Regional universities especially have a problem because actually the cost for running a university in the regions are substantial. And universities across the country have said they're committed to working on agreements with staff while minimising the impact to students this week. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. And hey, we did ask the Education Minister, Jason Clare, to come on the show today. He was not available. I am hearing from you on the text line, though. Someone says, I'm a student studying teaching and I stand 100% with the staff on strike. Another person, I'm both a student and a staff member at a uni. I can tell you unis are so exploitative of staff at all levels. I'd never be a career academic based on the horrible exploitation I've seen. That was from Georgia. And another person, my uni professor's been filling us in on the negotiations and apparently some of the unis haven't even been coming to the table. They all deserve better. That one was from Sean in Geelong. What is the answer here? Because there are big discussions around it and the government is promising they're looking into it. We'll ask an expert now. Associate Professor Peter Hurley is with Victoria Uni's Mitchell Institute and he is an expert in higher education. Peter, thanks for coming on Hack. You're welcome. Every time we speak about unis on hack and we put it out to listeners, we really get overwhelmed by the response, not only from students, from staff as well. It seems nobody is happy with the current system in Australia. Is it broken? There's a lot going on at universities at the moment, and it's been a very difficult time for universities during the pandemic. But a lot of these issues that I think are, that are producing these um, that kind of strong feedback, they've been they've been around for a while, and I mean they've they've got to do with you know how our university sector is run, it's the size of it, what we ask our universities to do, and I think a lot of those issues are coming to a head in the kind of the things that are happening at the moment. Do we need to be seeing a bigger response from government here? Because we know the federal government's saying it's like looking into the issues and, and considering what's going on. What kind of action do we need to be seeing? Well, the government's actually uh, undertaking a, a process at the moment called the Universities Accord, um, and that was a, a, a Labor 
party promise and it was to look at how universities are run and and how to set them up and and how can they be you know meet all the the, the different kind of needs that all the different kinds of services they need to do i mean universities have a really broad remit they're meant to do research they're meant to do teaching i mean they're meant to be drivers of growth and, and all of those things so i mean the government is looking at some of these at these issues but it's i mean it's a bit of a wicked problem i mean these these issues of casualization and better pay and workloads i mean they're, they're very very hard to solve the universities accord as you were talking about it's going to be out later this year is there stuff that you're expecting to be included in that are there any ideas of uh, what will be in it everything's meant to be in it <laughs> and look this issue so issues around say workforce academic workloads absolutely that's been raised as an issue but there's also these other issues around things like funding who who pays for the system i mean there's been a lot about at the moment around say student debt the amount that students pay for these courses or, or are liable through um student loans that's also up for discussion so it's i mean i think the issue with the university's accord is it's 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 a lot to look at in a little time because, as you say, it's meant to report by the end of the year. There's been a lot of criticism recently of the Morrison government's job-ready graduates package. Listeners will know, very controversial. It saw some humanities students uh, with increased fees and now universities, Australia is saying, look, it never worked, shouldn't be happening. What would replace that, though? Is there any idea of what would come into place if we got rid of it? That is what's been being looked at. Look, the Job Ready Graduates Program, I think the major problem with it is it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, the, the reasons for why it's been put in, you know, once they're examined, they kind of fall apart. And in fact, in many ways, there's through these kind of the, the way that it's structured, it's actually encouraging universities to enrol students into the courses that they're meant to be discouraging. So there's all these kind of perverse incentives. In terms of what replaces it as a that look that absolutely is is up for debate there still will be you know a, a, what we know as hex that income contingent loan component the amount that a student has to pay and depend and by course i suspect that will change and that's what's being looked at and there's also these other things that might be possible to look at i mean the federal government has a real kind of focus on equity and 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 the, and the role of say universities and education systems in improving kind of you know, student equity and you know people from um, a disadvantaged backgrounds. So that might also find its way into the into the policy responses. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Associate Professor Peter Hurley, who is with Victoria University's Mitchell Institute, about some of the issues facing universities across the country at the moment. We're seeing strikes at the moment. If you are a student at uni, you probably uh, might have seen classes cancelled, or you've been out protesting with some of the staff at unis yourself. One of the things, Peter, that we often hear from staff and students is that the quality of teaching and learning has dropped at universities. Is that fair to say? I mean, you, you were saying before that some of these issues have been around for years. It's not just since COVID happened and everything went online. Is it fair to say that the quality has really declined significantly? That certainly came through in the um, quality indicators report that they did during the pandemic when everyone shifted onto um, online learning and there was a there was a very noticeable drop 10 percentage points in the um, uh, in the overall kind of reporting of of the quality of teaching and learning I mean it's a look it's, it's a difficult issue I think because what has been happening a lot is there's this kind of casualization within within the um, academic workforce so that it's more likely to be casual academics who are who are kind of on the front line of these kind of teaching things and that's you know that can be very difficult because you know they're not there long term 
they they're the ones carrying the you know the bulk of the teaching load that is going to have an impact on quality and, and so forth but it's it's a very difficult problem I think because universities also need to find the staff and, and pay them and you know there's scarce resources. Do you think it's going to be an easy thing to turn around? <laughs> if how long do you think it's going to take for these for any reforms I guess to really make an impact? Look, it's going to take a long time, but it does. I do have a sense of, and maybe others do, about this kind of this reckoning. Now, this has been going on for quite some time now, particularly that kind of casualization, and you can kind of see that a lot in the um, and workloads. I mean, what actually counts as part of a an academic workload is, you know, it, it can vary. How much do you get paid to do the marking? All of these type of things are vary, and they can vary by institution. And there needs to be some clarification about it. And I think that once that's done, I think the system can adjust, and and it would be clear about what's needed to make sure that, that that this sector is resourced properly. And Peter, just finally, what about international students? Because there's a lot of debate about that as well. Do we need to see changes in how that part of the university revenue stream or sector is handled? It is hard to underestimate how important the international student revenue is to universities. Without them, they would not be able to function. I mean, essentially, international students, and they're very important members of university communities, and I, uh, and I need to say that, but they're, it's also very important in terms of the resourcing and being able to manage this, this important resource because it's, everyone benefits from international students, including domestic students, because it means that there are better facilities and, uh, and so on. Being able to manage that better will go a long way to making sure that our university sector, not just our university sector, but our vocational sector as well, is as strong as it can be. Well, look, we're about to speak a bit more about international students now and some of the issues uh, they are facing across the country. But look, we appreciate your insight into all of this. A very big week across the higher education sector. Peter Hurley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, we get 15 minutes per 1,000 words for report marking. You cannot do the report justice. That's from a worker there. Someone else says, I tutored for a uni last year and found out during the course that we'd only be allocated 10 minutes per student to read and mark assignments over 500 words each with over 40 students allocated to each tutor. Another person, the whole education system is broken in Australia. There are issues as well for teachers in high schools and other educational settings. That is true. Someone says, if uni fees are going up, but pay and conditions for staff are going down, where is the money going? And another person has very, you know, big opinion. Talkers talk, walkers walk. You don't like the workload, quit. We always need more chippies, sparkies and plummets. Hey, another big story related to students. Hack. There is now a very strong question on the minds of international students and many migrants to the Territory whether or not they will continue to stay here. On Triple J. Yeah, horrible story out of the NT today. You might have seen this. An international student right now in a critical condition after allegedly being attacked in his own bed. It's led to hundreds of international students in the Territory standing up and saying, we've had enough, we actually don't feel safe. We feel like there's more that could be done to make things safer for us. You know, this isn't a new issue. We've spoken about international student safety before, for years, and the perception that Australia is not a safe place for some to study. So there was this protest in Darwin today calling for better accommodation options, safer transport, more lighting for campus safety so students can travel safely at night. Our reporter Miles Holbrook Walker is in Darwin and he's been covering this. He went to the vigil. Miles, what exactly has happened here? 
Well, Dave, what we know at the moment is that police say in the early hours of Wednesday morning, uh, a man has allegedly entered into a home and caused some sort of disturbance. Initially, it was reported by police as an aggravated burglary. It's there where a 23-year-old man who his close friends and family have asked to be referred to as Sifat, that's uh, his middle name, not his whole name there. And essentially what has happened is this young man is now fighting for his life in a critical condition at the Royal Darwin Hospital. Senior Sergeant Paul Morrissey from the NT Police actually described the situation as to how a man allegedly entered into his home in Darwin. One of the residents woke to the sound of someone in the yard. He woke some of the other residents. As a group, they went out and found a male in their yard. They chased the trespasser away uh, after um, some verbal exchange. Residents then checked on each other and they checked in one of the bedrooms and found uh, one of their fellow residents on his bed uh, with apparent head trauma. Now, he was an international Bangladeshi student and he's being supported by the Bangladeshi Students Association. They're a really big cohort, not only in Darwin, but if we look broadly at Australia's international student numbers, South Asian students make up a really significant part across the country. Already, the Vice-Chancellor of Charles Darwin University, which is sometimes referred to as CDU, said the whole campus is in shock and he kind of feels like he's failed the young man here. To fulfil the promise that we have made to our students from Bangladesh, but really to our students from around the world, come to the Northern Territory and you will be safe. On that score, we let CFAT down. He came to the Northern Territory and he wasn't safe. Right, so that was the Vice-Chancellor of the Uni speaking today at a vigil that was held. Miles, you were at that vigil. Were there a lot of people there? Like, what was the feeling? Oh, yeah, there were, Dave. There was a couple of hundred people there. And even though police at the moment believe this is a random attack, it definitely is something that international students are now saying that they have a lot of demands around. They want more safe, available accommodation on campus. This young man was living in a private rental. They also want to be able to see transport to and from a campus in the northern suburbs of Darwin into the city. And it's not uncommon for a lot of universities all around Australia to have a shuttle bus to take you around. And that's something that these international students up here are saying they want more broadly. I actually spoke to Saqib Farhan, who met CFAT just a couple of weeks ago at an Eid festival, and, and he says so many people are reeling and feeling this really residual emotion as a result of this really horrifying incident. We haven't really been able to come to completely in terms of what actually happened because it was extremely unsettling. He would be, have been the last person... I would have imagined to be uh, a victim of such an incident. I feel so sad for this student and his family. And I really think CDU need to do something, like to ensure the student here have a safe accommodation and safe transportation. Yeah, some students there speaking with you earlier today. It sounds like that there are a lot of students, international students, demanding changes, Miles. What do they want to see happen? What kind of action here? Because a lot of them, it appears, feel like they're not being supported. Yeah, totally. So there's a few things. One is around lighting on campus, particularly for nighttime classes. I spoke to one student who said, 
I just don't feel safe. And I think a lot of other female students, whether international or local, don't feel safe at all when walking around campus at night. Uh, additionally, a shuttle bus transporting students from the city to the northern suburbs campus, which is 20 minutes away, they were saying when they catch public transport in Darwin, they don't feel safe. Now, CDU have said at the moment through their Vice-Chancellor Scott Bauman that all options are on the table and they really want to work productively with the government on this one. Another thing that is emerging though, Dave, is this broader question of as this gets more and more attention because it's running hot on the ground here in the community, is do international students start to consider looking elsewhere to study either in the country or abroad? Obviously, it's going to impact on international students choosing where they're going to go. Where is our safety? Because we here alone, we don't have any families. We left our families back home. So we are just driving ourselves solo in here. I talked to someone, they feel like they're going to move interstate. Don't want to live in Darwin anymore because they're so scared of their own lives. Yeah, look, there are some big issues there and students obviously uh, strong opinions coming from far from home to study, not feeling safe. That's a huge issue. Uh, we're going to let those investigations continue. We'll keep checking in. Hack reporter Miles Holbrook, Walk in Darwin, thanks for filling us in. And we've got some messages coming through as well. Someone says, I feel for this young man and the reality of 80% of us Territorians. I was born in Alice, now Darwin, and the crime rate is insane. It's the worst it's ever been. Hack, are we going to be able to read minds and change unpredictable behaviour? Yes, it's a matter of time. This is not science fiction. On Triple J. Imagine walking past someone and knowing straight away exactly what they're thinking. Could be awkward. You're meeting someone new, can instantly tell they hate what you're wearing, think you're annoying. Or maybe it could actually cut down a lot of time when you're dating someone. Just jump straight to the point. I love you. Marry me. The thing is, there actually is a fair bit of research going on into decoding language and meaning from brain scans. So how close are we to reading minds? And actually, what kind of ethical issues does that bring up? Because I imagine there are a few. <laughs> Someone who knows a lot about this is Christina Marsh. She's a neuroscientist and biomedical engineer at Sydney Uni. And she's with me right now. Christina, thanks so much for coming in. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Can you read my mind right now? Oh, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's not much going on up there, actually. It's pretty simple. I am fascinated by this topic, though. There is some new research out in the US where they've been using brain scans. So we're talking like MRIs, right, mm -hmm. to piece together people's thoughts. How have they done this? So I think let's take a step back and look at how decoders work, Uh what the aim is, is to take brain activity and link it to a stimulus. And in this case, they put these people into an MRI scanner and they're looking at activity in the brain, which is blood flow moving around the brain and changes in the brain in response to these um, stories they were listening to or animations they were watching. And then they link them to specific words or phrases that they would have heard while they were watching these movies. And what the interesting thing is that this study found is that, first of all, they were working with what we call non-invasive data. So usually you would need an implanted device to capture the sort of information that they found. But in this case, they put them into an MRI scanner, no need for open brain surgery or anything yeah. like that. And they were able to capture specific words and phrases with their model. So that was kind of 
the key, really cool bit, I and guess. Was about it pretty this. accurate? Was like what they were able to capture? Yeah. So my understanding of the work is that they, so traditionally they have been able to decode, um, I guess, meaning from people's brain data. So either electrical activity or MRI data. But in this case, they were actually a, uh, able to capture uh, sentences with some correct words. Um, and the performance of the model is actually quite astounding. That is so wild to me. I just think it's crazy. Does it change a lot from person to person though? Like if you can decode what I'm thinking through brain scans, does that necessarily mean you can decode what another person's thinking? Does it look pretty similar? Yeah. So this is, this is the really important piece what they found was that you need to rec- uh, train the model on a person's individual data right. in order to get good performance or good accuracy. So they tested whether they could train the model on someone else's data and test it on a different person and it didn't have good performance. And they also found that you needed to get the person to comply or, or um, I guess, participate in the activity and, in, and do the actual steps that they ask them to do in order to get that good performance. Interesting. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Christina Marr, a neuroscientist at Sydney Uni, about fascinating research into mind reading and brain scans and the developments we're seeing. They're just getting better and better. I've got messages coming through. Some of them are pretty funny. Reese says, I can't even read my own mind half the time. Good luck <laughs> reading it for me. Someone else says, gone will be the days of, how was I supposed to know what you're thinking? I'm not a mind reader. That's right, James. You won't be able to say that soon. Uh, Christina, do we have speech decoders now? Like you mentioned invasive brain surgery and that sort of thing. There are things that can be implanted where these signals can be read, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the key differences of this work. We have found in the past that you can apply speech decoders to other types of brain data and I guess roughly determine the gist or the meaning of what someone is trying to say. Uh, For instance, in my work, I work with electrical signals rather than blood flow in the brain. I could take a speech decoder model and train it on my data and I could get a participant to try and... um, you know, think about certain words and we could do some of the things with many different types of data. So that was the key, um, I guess, novel aspect of this study. Um, but one other thing that was really cool about this study is that they found that because they recorded this activity from specific brain regions, so traditionally we know that brain regions are involved in, uh, certain brain regions are involved in language processing. Uh, but in this study, they found that some of the regions we think are uh, both needed to process, actually one one or the other are redundant. So they're both processing the same thing. And that was really interesting because what that means is we can make, if we have like a smaller device, we don't need to capture the whole brain's activity. We can just pop um, an electrode or a sensor on one area and capture activity from that area. That's and, yeah. so interesting. Yeah. There's so many implications to this yeah. and people are messaging in with their thoughts on it. Some, you know, amazed, others terrified, some a mixture of both. Um, what is your research focusing on, Christina? Is it quite different to what's happened in the US? Yeah, so we look also at uh, MRI scans, but we also add in another piece of data called electroencephalography, which is a really fancy term for electrical signals in the brain. <laughs> yeah, and what we try to do is look at um, 
what's happening when someone has a seizure. And so that's a lot simpler than trying to decode language, of course. Uh, but we also use AI to try and match uh, what's happening in the brain during a seizure to that person's behaviour. And that's really what these speech decoders are doing. They're looking at what's happening in the brain and linking it to an output, which is speech. Christina, do you ever think we'll get to a point where authorities, people with your high-tech technology will be able to invade your mind and figure out what you're thinking without sticking you into an MRI? Because at the moment, it's tricky because you're in this machine, you can't move, you're in there for a long time. But do you think it could be simplified a lot in the years ahead? Yeah, so as I was saying before, that is one of the key interesting things about this is that if we don't need that whole MRI machine, if we can just capture this information from one part of the brain, as devices get smaller and as AI advances and gets better and better, we may be able uh, to decode sentences or phrases. But again, you're going to need a lot of data from that same individual person whose, I guess, thoughts you want to read. And it's going to need to be high quality data and you're going to need a lot of it. So I don't see it happening anytime soon. Okay. Okay. Well, that might be a relief for some people listening who are messaging in right now. It's such interesting work that you do. Whenever we speak about the brain, mind, um, we just want to know more because I guess there's so much that we really don't know at the moment, right? Um, we'll be continuing to keep track of your research. Thank you so much for this. Neuroscientist Christina Ma, appreciate you joining us on Hack. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple J.